I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. This will be the final episode of 2022 and of the first season of A Therapist Can't Say That. I'm going to be taking a winter break, theoretically, so I can rest and refresh my creative energy, but realistically also so I can give some attention to some other projects that are in the works. We will be back with new episodes when spring comes around in April, and I'm excited for some of the things I have simmering on the back burner for you. As I've been reflecting on the conversation Dr. Hickson and I had about clinical supervision and reflecting on the past season of this podcast and the topics my guests and I have explored and contemplating what I want to say here in the final episode of the season, I keep coming back to the piece we stumbled upon about clinical supervisors as culture makers, culture replicators, culture changers. It feels very fitting that we got there because this podcast itself was born out of the desire to change the culture of our profession. And as I've been sitting with that over the past few weeks, the more aware I'm becoming of how important I think it is that as therapists, all of us, clinical supervisors or no, we cultivate an understanding of ourselves as makers of culture. I don't think it necessarily comes naturally to human beings in general to think of ourselves that way, as makers of culture. Culture is the water we swim in. We barely perceive it most of the time, let alone perceiving ourselves influencing it. Especially as Americans steeped in a culture of atomized individualism with weak community ties, we especially are not oriented toward perception of ourselves in the context of the larger social apparatus, the broader culture, and all its operations. We all know intellectually that we are part of something larger than ourselves. But to feel it, let alone move through the world knowing it in our bones and letting that knowing guide us, is something else altogether. There's a reason why so many of people's most memorable moments, their most powerfully striking experiences, include an element of transcendence in which they have an intimate and immediate perception of themselves as part of a greater whole. That perception is often a remarkable and unusual experience. But even as we glimmer in and out of that awareness, we are, of course, always part of a greater whole. Human culture is made by humans. We are all producing or reproducing that every day within our spheres of influence. And of course, the bigger that sphere and the greater your influence within that sphere, the more power you have as a maker or unmaker or reproducer of culture. And we know from Spider-Man that with great power comes great responsibility. Sidebar, I didn't actually learn that directly from Spider-Man. I learned it from my 10th grade English teacher who took me aside one day because I was apparently being too bombastic with my classmates about my opinions on literature. I know, little old me, who would have thought? And suggested I use the Spider-Man moral, with great power comes great responsibility, as a guidepost in my academic dealings with my fellow students. It was a very effective tactic because it appealed to my nascent perception of myself as someone with great power. And although I remember never really understanding what it was specifically that he thought I should change about my approach, nor do I remember understanding exactly what it was I was doing differently after that conversation, 
I know that it apparently worked based on my teacher's feedback at the end of that school year. So I believe in the power of this maxim. I know that many of you have a hard time thinking of yourselves as someone with great power. There are a lot of reasons why that might be hard, some of which we've explored a bit on past episodes. Maybe the negative experiences you've had with powerful people have overwhelmed your perceptions of power as something that can be wielded in a beneficial way. Or maybe you've endured painful repercussions at times when you did step into your own power and own it. Maybe you're still acting on cultural scripts that tell you not to take up too much space. Maybe you've experienced significant moral injury in the course of this work that has left you feeling helpless in the face of massively powerful systems and institutional inertia. Or maybe you live in a culture, American, that equates power and influence with fame and renown. And I think that's long been the case, but now As we are still living through this age of social media and we have therapist influencers with huge accounts and followings and so much of the business advice out there for people who work one-on-one with clients is about scaling and supposedly expanding the scope of your influence by putting your name in a lot more people's mouths. So it may be hard to sit there listening to this as one person in your private practice or your community agency or your group practice thing seeing your one-on-one clients or your couples or families and think of yourself as a person with a lot of power and influence. But I want you to consider this. Influencing people is actually the core of our job. We attempt to gain influence over our clients and then leverage that influence in such a way that it benefits them psychologically, behaviorally, interpersonally, etc. Whatever your theoretical orientation, your modality, that's what you're doing. That's why a therapist is a necessary component of the therapeutic process, because we are agents of influence. If that wasn't the case, they could just replace us all with computers. And I know some people and corporations out there would love to do just that episode for another time, maybe, but I don't think that's ever going to fly. In his fantastic book for early career clinicians, The Gift of Therapy, Irvin Yalom points out that we want to, as he puts it, loom large in our clients' minds. We want to play a significant role in the landscape of our clients' inner voices. That's a significant part of how the therapeutic relationship generates change. Our clients internalize their mental maps of us, is how my teacher Dave Schnarch would have said it. And as they carry those mental maps of us with them and are shaped by them, they are in turn shaping others in a new and different way. As I've been writing this, I've been thinking actually about the last training I had with Dave and an anecdote he shared about a significant moment he had with one of his main teachers. The anecdote itself isn't so much important here as the sense I had when he shared it of this suddenly briefly visible contact between Dave's teacher, who I had never met and whose name I have now forgotten, and us, Dave's students. I was being influenced by this person I wouldn't know if I saw them on the street, whose name I probably wouldn't even recognize now if I came across it out of context. And my clients and my future students and supervisees will be influenced by Dave, even though they will never meet him and may not know his name either, although perhaps less likely since I talk about him all the time. And through me, they will also be influenced by his teacher, 
whose name I don't know, and whoever's his teacher's teachers were, and on and on back. You can trace it back forever into these deep and vast networks of interpersonal influence that do not rely solely or even primarily on fame and renown. We are all being shaped deeply by people we will never know and who never knew us. That's culture. And in the course of our everyday doings, and particularly in this work, we are all inexorably shaping people we will never know and who will never know us. That's what it means to be a culture maker. So I will return to the question Dr. Hickson asked last episode. What kind of culture do we want to make? That's a question I invite you to really take in and get cozy with and revisit again and again. In the course of my work in this profession, what kind of culture am I making? And what kind of culture do I want to make? Both in terms of the big picture cultural norms we may be passing along or interrupting in our work with clients, supervisees, students, but also in terms of our professional culture, the norms and beliefs and practices that we are passing on to the next generation of therapists, the people that will be carrying on this work after we are gone. We're creating the cultural waters that they will be swimming in right now. As for me, the two great loves of my life are my daughter and this work. And a changed culture, an improved culture of therapy is what, in my wildest dreams, I hope to leave her as my legacy. I assume she'll need some therapy to assuage the impact of whatever my parenting mistakes turn out to be, so I want her to be in good hands. For those of you who have children or young people that you love and whose future you are invested in, when you imagine them growing up and going to therapy, whose hands do you want them in? What is the culture you envision that generates those hands? What are the things we can do in the here and now as collectively the makers of this professional culture to make that outcome possible? Here are a few things I know about the kind of culture I want to make. I want to make a professional culture where we challenge ourselves and each other to stretch our capacities to hold complexity. The novelist Maxine Hong Kingston writes, I learned to make my mind large, like the universe is large, so there is room for paradoxes. I want us to learn to make our minds large and to wrestle with the paradoxes they can contain. I want to make a professional culture where we cultivate and support each other's passion for this work and where we carry the fire for each other with grace when any one of us is too exhausted or too injured or too much in the dark cave of existential questioning to hold that passion for a while. I want to make a professional culture where we recognize the sacrifices inherent in having a vocation without weaponizing those sacrifices against each other. I want to make a professional culture where we embrace humility without self-diminishment and mastery without self-aggrandizement. I want to make a professional culture where we are comfortable enough with our own shortcomings, mistakes, and failures that we can hold each other's shortcomings, mistakes, and failures with compassion. I want to make a professional culture where we see risk management as something we have to manage, not as the core directive of our work. I want to make a professional culture where we are learning how to be in community with one another, doing the terrible and wonderful labor of investing deeply in the well-being of people we may not agree with or even particularly like. 
I want to make a professional culture where we relinquish the idea of therapy as an exact science and embrace it as an art that is informed by science. I want to make a professional culture where we recognize and appreciate each other's unique talents in this work and help each other develop the skills that can turn talent into genius, or at least into damn fine art. I want to make a professional culture where we can put the good therapist archetype up on the shelf to collect dust and get down to the art of doing good therapy. The how of all this is, of course, a bit more complicated. But this podcast is a part of my attempt. And so I want to thank you for being here, listening, wrestling with these ideas, and I hope stepping into your role as a culture maker. I also want to thank all of my guests this season, Nancy Jane Smith, Rebecca Ching, Ben Feynman, Carrie Wieda, Allison Ausfed, Ofer Zur, Rachel K. Albers, and of course, Kay Hickson for the generative conversations and important perspectives they shared with us. And lastly, I'd like to thank my production team at Yellow House Media, without whom this show would definitely not be reaching your ears, especially my MVP, Sean McMullen, who chases me down when I'm on the verge of missing deadlines, doesn't seem to mind my toddler side busting our Zoom calls, and still finds time to shoot the shit with me about mushroom foraging. As always, you can find me, Reva Stout, on IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. If you're a therapist, particularly a therapist in Oregon, I am going to have some trainings coming up, so watch that space. Otherwise, it always helps me out if you can rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, especially when you share the show with your therapist friends. They'll have plenty of time to binge listen before I come back in the spring. I always love hearing your thoughts about what we are exploring here on A Therapist Can't Say That, so please feel free to get in touch and send me an email or a voice note at reva at intothewoodsportland.com. I'll talk to you in April. Happy New Year.